Tonight we are entering this season of Lent. We're also launching a message series that will continue on Sunday, which is called Wise Up. Kind of an odd way of looking at it. It's going to take us through all the way through the celebration of Easter on April the 17th. And tonight we're going to start with what I call unconventional wisdom. Wisdom that just plain simple doesn't make sense. And it kind of answers the question, what does life look like when the cross is the filter through which you see everything? Let's be honest, the wisdom of the world today uh, teaches us to think in certain ways. But when the cross is laid across our lives, we begin to see things differently. Those of you that may have lived a life at one time apart from Jesus, the world led you one way, but when Jesus came into your life, suddenly everything changed. And we see things differently. It causes us to wise up, to get smart. And why is that? It's because the cross always lifts us to higher wisdom, uh, greater understanding, a deeper truth, and it guides us in God's ways. Now, I want to go back to a couple of verses that Jeff read to you before. Uh, Verse 18 and verse 25, and you see them on the screen. Verse 18 says, for the message of the cross is foolishness. It's silly. I mean, whatever word you want to plug in there, to those who are perishing, but to those of us or to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And then again in verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the wisdom of God is stronger than man's strength. I don't know if you've ever been sitting someplace like I do at a coffee shop and you've heard a conversation that goes something like this at the table next to you. Well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I want everybody to know that my personal lifestyle and my religion don't interfere with one another. I believe in God, a God who makes me happy. Have you ever heard somebody talk like that before? I'm going to keep my religion and my real life separate. Well, that kind of thinking is not new at all. I mean, it's just not something they invented in 2022. It's been around a long time. People have wanted a God who will always place his stamp of approval on whatever their activity happens to be. It doesn't require them then to change to be any better than they were. And they have come up with all kinds of euphemisms to make it sound right. I'm going to give you a few examples. Back when I was a kid, a teenager growing up in Nebraska, uh, we used to call it living in sin. You ever hear that one before? How about this one? Shacking up. That's moving up a little bit closer. But today, it's called having a meaningful relationship. That's interesting to change. Or what used to be called self-indulgence is now called self-fulfillment. Or what used to be called chastity, believe it or not, is now called a neurotic inhibition. And what used to be called uh, killing the unborn today is called the right to choose. Now, Jesus encountered that attitude everywhere he went. He looked at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you you read your scriptures, you know he called them hypocrites, hypocrites, two-faced people, and he also called them whitewashed tombs. They had the breath of death, but they kind of coated themselves in some good things. And outside, they appeared to be pious and prayerful and obedient, but they were rotten. And uh, I have good, I have bad news for you. People are still the same. It really hasn't changed that much. We kind of want a God who doesn't require a whole lot of changes in our life and who places his stamp of approval on just about anything and everything we do, as long as we're kind of a good person. And those of you that tried that, and I've tried that in the past growing up, I'm sure, 
it kind of works for a while, but sooner or later you kind of bump into that old rugged cross. And I thought about this one. It's kind of a, a rugged looking thing up there as opposed to kind of a shiny one down here. But maybe you've seen that old rugged cross. But when you bump into that old rugged cross, you meet a God who says, Jeff, I don't really approve of the way you're doing things. Or Chuck, I, I, what, you, what you call being nice is not what I call nice in my book. Joel, you know, what, what you're doing is, is, is demeaning the cross of Jesus. Or Nancy, you're doing stuff that I, I had to suffer and die for. And maybe you'd say to all of us, it's time for you to wise up. So the Apostle Paul said, uh, the Jews stumble over the cross and the Greeks think it's foolishness, but others see in it the power and the wisdom of God. Dunamis, that's the Greek word, dynamite. The cross is dynamite. And, you know, there's still these kind of people in this world yet today. Uh, he talked about the Jews. Uh, the Jews looked at the cross and they stumbled over it because it, they didn't see the Messiah they wanted. I used to think that they were really looking for um, a kind of a Rambo God, a kind of an Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of God. and come out and beat up the Romans. Uh, it's kind of strange that they didn't see the Messiah they wanted because they had been chosen by God and they'd been told this Messiah was going to come who was going to deliver you. Uh, he'd watch over them. He protected them. Uh, generations, you know, everything from walking them through the Red Sea uh, to having a pillar of fire by day, a, or a pillar by fire at night and a cloud by day. But when they saw the Messiah, they rejected him. And because they didn't like him, what did they do with him? They crucified him. Scripture says, Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. Paul tells us that the Jews stumbled over the cross because the Jews demanded miraculous signs. I find that kind of humorous because that's all Jesus seemed to be doing for a while, is one miraculous sign after another. Uh, he was giving sight to blind people. Uh, he was straightening the legs of lame people. Uh, he was cleansing the putrid skin of lepers. Uh, he was ministering to them. He was reaching out to them. Jesus was touching people that other people wouldn't normally touch. But that kind of went right over their head uh, because those weren't the kind of miracles they wanted. Now, I don't know. Some of, I read about the miracles Jesus did. They'd blow me away. They didn't want those kind of miracles. They wanted miracles uh, that would provide power and success. They wanted miracles that would overthrow the Romans and establish them as new rulers of this world. I mean, if Jesus would have ridden into town and put together a brand new army and then led them into battle, defeated the Romans, killed all these people, uh, if they had shown them what he, that he was successful and victorious, they would have marched behind him. But, and there's always a but, isn't there? The cross got in the way. See, the cross doesn't look like success or power. Now, a lot of our crosses today look pretty simple, and I don't think we really have a great idea of what, how horrid the cross really is. Because the cross doesn't really look like victory to anybody. It looks like weakness. It looks like death. It looks like failure. It looks like defeat. And so people keep stumbling over the cross. See, not only do they have a false concept about the Messiah, who he really is, they have a false concept of what it really means to be saved. See, they think the way to salvation, at least the Jews did, was through their own right living. They had a set of rules they were going to follow. But as we read scripture, we find out they weren't following the law. 
They were busy running to church day after day after day. And Bible says they were off to the synagogue every day, every time there was a worship service. At the appointed times, they got there at their appointed times, they checked in. They said their prayers as loudly as they could say them. They often would stand on the street corner and pray out loud, you know, Oh Lord, uh, aren't you happy to have me in your church, in your family? They put their offerings in the plate by dropping them from on high so it would make noise as it rattled through these little kettles that they had, and they made sure people saw what they put in the collection plate. Now, when I think about that, I go back to my church in my childhood in Nebraska. Uh, I remember the first time sitting in the back rows with my grandma and grandpa, and I was watching them take the offering, and as it came to the people in front, I noticed this guy from the back. He raised his hand in the air as the plate came by, and he put it in the plate and then handed it off. And I asked my grandpa, I says, what was that? He says, that's the bank president. He's only here once a year. And he wants to make sure everybody knows that he contributes. And he says, quite honestly, his contribution kind of helps us stay afloat. There probably are still people. We we don't take an offering here, so you don't have to worry about that. (laughs) But they appeared to be pious and prayerful and generous. And as far as they were concerned, they didn't need a Savior. They didn't need anybody to die on a cross for them. They thought the way to salvation was, you know, how they defined it. So those are the Jews. I don't know whether you can fit in with that. But he also said the Greeks. The Greeks. The Greeks wanted what? Wisdom. They were the um, intelligentsia, if you will, of the day. Uh, They had produced people like... uh, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, great thinkers, many of them we still read today. I want to read you a quote from Socrates. Socrates said, the secret to a successful society is education. If we can just give everybody a good education, then it must follow that the world will get better and better. I'm prone to say, follow the science. (laughs) If we only follow somebody else's teaching. See, we've been told for generations that education will ultimately solve all of our problems. All we need is more education. People will become better and better. But we haven't. Now, I'm not opposed to education. I was a school teacher for a long time. A pastor still kind of being a teacher in a way. It's just that we can learn everything there is to learn and still not know everything because of one simple little three-letter word, sin. And the middle letter in sin is what? Now, the 17th chapter of Acts describes a scene where Paul came to Athens. Some of you may have known know this story. Uh, all of these uh, Athenians were sitting around on this place called Mars Hill in a place called the Areopagus. And they were all there thinking their profound thoughts. And they told, every, as, as uh, Luke says in Acts, he says, they told each other everything new. Now, can you just imagine that? Have you read the story? Paul walks in and starts talking about an unknown God. Uh, And he said this God came to earth and he walked among men. He uh, died on a cross and he rose again. You can almost see, you know, instantaneous cardiac arrest amongst the whole group. But see, all of this was foolishness to them. After all, reason tells you that babies aren't born to virgin girls. That's what reason tells you. Reason tells you that 
God, who is a spirit, doesn't turn into a fleshly human being. Reason tells you that the Almighty God will not allow puny people to nail him to a cross. Reason says that when a guy dies, he's dead. He cannot come back to life. And see, none of that made sense. So the Greeks looked at the cross as foolishness. It was scandalon. That's the Greek word. Scandalon is a stumbling block. They were tripping over it. And they also had a different concept of salvation, how you get to be saved. Greeks thought that all souls were immortal. And therefore, when you die, if you were good enough, then you get to go float around with the gods. But if you weren't good enough, guess what? You would reincarnate, and you keep on reincarnating until you finally get it right. See, they did not need a Savior because they said, everybody's going to be saved anyway. I mean, who cares? So when it comes to hearing about a cross, it was foolishness. It was crazy. Why does anybody have to go to a cross and die? I mean, that's just, that's just dumb. After all, we're all going to be saved someday. I don't know if, that sound, if any of that sounds familiar, what the Jews and the Greeks were doing. But he shifts to a third party. It's called you. <laughs> he shifts it to me. Now, we kind of hear the same kind of thinking today. It's as old as Mars Hill. It's old as the Old Testament. We really haven't learned much because we still do the same sins. Uh, we still think the same false thoughts. Uh, we still stumble over the same cross. We're still laughing at the wisdom of God and treating it like it's foolishness. And the man who wrote these words, who was Paul, actually lived in both ways. Paul tried being the best Jew he could possibly be, even to the point of committing murder. Isn't that strange? I'm such a good Jew because I'm going to be out there killing these people who call themselves Christ followers. Because He did it because he thought he had to do that. Growing up, Paul had the, night, the greatest teachers. When he, when he learned all his mind could absorb, he was still empty inside. And when he kept all of the rules, all of the regulations, when he tried to save himself through his own righteousness, he still felt empty. But many of you know that story on a way to Damascus to do what he thought the Lord wanted to do, to find a whole bunch more Christians, lock them up, put them in jail, kill them. Suddenly something happened. He sees a light that he's never seen before in his life. And he hears a voice that he'd never heard before in his life. And suddenly, everything began to make sense to Paul. Uh, go back and read Romans chapter 7. If Mark were here tonight, he would tell you you should do that because he likes that part. He says, I now understand what's right and what's wrong. I mean, it was revelatory to Paul. See, the world still hasn't figured it out. We're still trying to say that what used to be right is now wrong, and what used to be wrong is now right. I'm amazed this in my lifestyle. See, the stuff that I used to think was terribly wrong, people do it today. That's crazy. Now, from the depths of his soul, well, I'm going to read you what Paul said here. Paul says, I now know what's right and wrong. I really want to do what's right, and I don't know and I don't want to do what is wrong. But here's my problem. When I get ready to do what's right, there's a power that tries to overwhelm me, and I often end up doing what's wrong. Did that happen to you in the last five minutes? <laughs> and then you could, almost, you could almost hear the change in the tone of his voice when he says, Oh, wretched man that I am. 
who's going to save me from this body of sin? But then he actually answered his own question. That's what he said. Thanks be to God for Christ Jesus, who lifted the burden of sin, took away anxiety and replaced it with peace, which took away despair and replaced it with hope, who took away sadness and replaced it with joy. God accomplished that which was impossible when he went to the cross and died for my sins. He did for me that I couldn't do for myself. I can't explain it, but I just know that it is true because I've been there. That is why I know it's true. And that is the invitation I offer. Now, during the Lenten season, and this probably about the last time you'll probably even think about Lent, because you know, right now you've got tunnel vision aimed right towards Easter Sunday. But, you know, we're all going to stand by the cross to see the one who suffers and dies there. I mean, come back on Good Friday when we have a service of darkness here and think about that. To submit to the one who says, you know, folks, I don't like your sin. I hate your sin. But I stand ready to forgive you of your sin. And to prove you that I'm really sincere in what I say to you, I'll pay the price and I will guarantee that you get the out-of-jail-free card. I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to love you all the way through this world and all the way into eternity. That's part of the reason I, I called this message about wisdom. See, it's kind of a preposterous claim, actually, the cross. In the cross of Christ, I glory. I don't know, Nancy, if you remember being in Macau. And we went to the church where that hymn was written. There was a church that was sitting up on the hill, and a typhoon had devastated the entire church. But at the top of the steps was just the back facade of that church with the cross. And the guy wrote that hymn, In the Cross of Christ, I Glory. And see, there are people for whom faith needs to make sense. They have to be able to understand the workings of God, and they keep running into the mysteries or, you know, science that contradicts. But there are people who choose to believe what they cannot see over what they can see. See, God calls us to come and die. That's kind of the whole lesson of Lent. He calls us to live by the cross and to allow the cross to inform every decision and every judgment we make in life. Three questions. Does it make sense? No, it doesn't. Does it bring worldly blessings? No, it doesn't. Is it the center of our faith? Yes, it is. Thank you, Lord, that while we enter this season of Lent, we know that Easter is coming. Death has no sting, no victory because of Jesus. Glory and honor and praise to his name, and thank you for rescuing us. Help us to keep both the weight and the joy of this season in our hearts as we move through the next weeks. Help us to bear the good fruit of your spirit. And thank you that the ashes on our forehead this evening do not symbolize our ultimate reality. From dust we might have been formed, but our bodies, our spirits, ourselves await a beautiful redemption and the restoration of all things. Help us long and look forward to that day and let it come quickly, Lord Jesus, in whose name we also pray. And I'd ask that you join together with me in praying the Lord's Prayer.